Вот бадавы гости еда наши. Welcome to Bread and Salt, a show about my Russian grandmother and my quest to learn about her life and the world that she came from. I am your host, Maria Schumann. I am a farmer and a folklorist and singer from beautiful Greensboro, Vermont, where together with my husband, Josh, we grow organic apples and raise sheep. And we also, whenever possible, try to mark the passing seasons in the old ways with songs, bonfires, blessings, sometimes even dances, and more songs. The opening song that you just heard is called Welcome Guests, and it's performed here by the Russian folk group Kastroma, who are based in San Francisco. This song is where I got the title of my show, Bread and Salt. And here's a loose translation. Dear guests, you are good and honorable. Come and sit, you good guests. Sit there and have a chat. Good guests, have some bread and salt, and we will have a meal together. So bread and salt symbolize prosperity and long life and happiness and hospitality, pretty much everything good. Bread and salt ceremonies exist all through all of Europe as well as the Mideast. They're very, very ancient. So I played this song to welcome you, my listeners, as you join me on my journey through my grandmother's life and world. I don't know exactly where this journey will lead. I imagine taking paths through great and terrible historical events, but also through boring and mundane moments of everyday life and small human interactions. And now I'm going to play the full song for you. Welcome Guests by Kostroma. Вот бадавы гости еда наши, да хорошая еда гостюшаке. Yeah. <laughs> 
to feel somehow in the last several years that understanding my grandmother's life is the key to making sense of my own life and place in this world. So let me introduce you. My grandmother, Maria Ivanovna Dikareva Scott, called Masha by most and Babushka by me and her other grandchildren, was born in a tiny log cabin in the tiny village of Lakova Hrapovitskaya in the central western province of Tver in Russia, six years before the Russian Revolution in 1911. She died 93 years later in her home in suburban Richfield, Connecticut. Her life was deeply impacted by the huge historical events that she lived through and skirted on the edges of the First World War, the Russian Revolution, Stalin's five-year plan and the industrialization of Russia, Stalin's purges, the Second World War, the Cold War. Her life also spanned ideologies, religious beliefs, and socioeconomic statuses. She went from being an ardent communist to a voting Republican from being an Orthodox Christian as a young child to an atheist to a born-again Christian, from poverty to wealth. And she went from being part of a collective endeavor and, and way of life, first of Russian peasant village life, then of collectivization and the building of the revolution. Um, and she went from that to a typical individualistic and isolated suburban American existence. Here's a song sung by the Dmitry Pokrovsky Ensemble from their 1991 album, Faces of Russia. The song is called Sunset. I don't have a translation.
I want to take a moment to talk about Eastern Slavic seasonal celebrations and rituals that my grandmother's family may have observed. There are so many folk traditions associated with this time of year. There's the Day of the Red Hill in late April, when all the women and girls in the village would gather on top of a hill and sing and dance the Horovod, a ritual circle dance invoking the power of the sun. There's the day in early May when animals were first brought to pasture and the rituals performed to protect and bless them, having the cows and sheep walk under boughs of greenery, singing them special songs, feeding them blessed bread. There's the Radunica, the spring day of the dead, because spring is not just about new life, but about death also. On this day, my ancestors would have had picnics on the graves of their ancestors, and would have left the dead offerings of food and drink. And there's one holiday that I just read about that reminded me so much of my grandmother. It's the day in early May when women would put their looms away for the season, because of course there was no time for weaving in the growing season. Thinking of the one and a half room log cabin that the 10 people in my grandmother's family shared, Putting the loom away must have felt a huge relief. And on that day, um, people, women would lay out freshly woven cloth on the fresh spring grass or bushes sprouting with young green leaves. The fabric would absorb the power of the spring, the power of the sun, the freshly budding leaves, the greenery, all the sprouting young new life. Women would leave a slice of pie for Mother Spring, thanking her for her blessings. And when I read about this, I thought instantly of Babushka, who I remember um, setting her laundry out to dry on top of her bushes in her Richfield um, home. And she had like cedar hedges and dogwood and other probably forsythias. I don't really remember what they were. I wasn't paying attention. But she would be so excited about that going out on a spring day and just talking about it, um, just about how good it was, how powerful it was to put the clothes on the greenery in the sun. And here's a ritual spring song from Latvia, performed by the group Saukedjas.
As a child, I was fascinated by my grandmother's life story, but I was also terrified of her. Babushka was an intimidating and harsh presence. When my mother could no longer force me to visit her, um, that was in my late teens, I stopped and I only saw her occasionally in my 20s and 30s. I was brought back to her story when I started farming. When I started farming with my husband around 15 years ago, I felt like I was coming home to a long-held dream. Spending hours bent over in the hot sun, preparing garden beds, um, nursing weak lambs back to health in the middle of the night, planting apple trees in wind and rain and snow. It was so hard and so concrete and so satisfying. And it made me think, what was it like for my grandmother? What was it like for my great-grandparents growing all their own food and knowing if a crop failed that their children would starve and not having a grocery store to go to? And my grandmother once said she didn't own a pair of shoes until she was 16. What did she wear on her feet before then? And what did they eat? What did they sing? How did they mark the passing seasons? What did they talk about? When I started farming, I began to feel the change of seasons in, uh, in, like in my whole being, in my bones. It was so different than, than just living life and kind of noticing seasons changing. Um, especially I would feel it in May and June when the days grew longer and the light just would wake me up early, early in the morning and everything had to be done. The sheep had to get moved to their new pasture. The They had to be milked like at least twice a day. The cheese had to be made. There were just, everything was blooming and blossoming and 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 um soaking in the power of the sun and that's how I felt too like the whole power of the sun was kind of emanating from me and um I felt filled with light and energy and and like nothing could stop me from spending every possible second I could like working to grow food for my family and community. And I thought, like, if I'm feeling like this now, in this age of computers and electricity and grocery stores, just and cars and tractors, how did my great-grandparents feel? Old Eastern European folk songs that I had learned many, many years ago and ancient folkloric customs that I had read about in grad school went from seeming antiquated and irrelevant to essential and necessary. And now I'm going to play for you a song, a spring ritual song called Strila, sung here by Hilka from their album, the Chernobyl Songs Project, 
living culture from a lost world. Somewhere in there, I decided that I needed to learn all that I could about my grandmother. Lucky for me, my family wrote about things. So somewhere on my parents' bookshelf, dusty and long unopened, were books by my grandfather, by my grandmother, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother, And some of them were about my grandmother's life or just at least were related or or referenced her life in some ways. In my parents' basement, moldering and a little mouse-eaten were also boxes of papers that my mother had brought home when her mother, my babushka, had died. 
There are many threads to the story. And I'm, again, I'm not sure where exactly it will take me. This trying to understand what peasant life was like in Russia over a hundred years ago. There's trying to pick up the hints of pre-Christian beliefs and practices that my grandmother's family held and that I'm so fascinated with. There's history, like with the big history with a capital H that my grandparents participated in. And then there's imagining what it's like to be a teenager during a revolution. And then somewhere out there, of course, is my grandmother herself. Tough as nails, proud, bossy, bitter, angry, mean, loving, unbelievably self-confident, dressed in expensive Lord and Taylor pantsuits, lecturing us all about Jesus, circling her tennis court with her hands in the air, dancing and singing, at the dinner table laughing so hard that tears rolled down her cheeks, loving my cousin Michael, who has a severe developmental disability and never learned to talk more than all the rest of us. And also, even as an 80-year-old or 90-year-old woman still missing her family and her country so much that she would cry from homesickness. Now I'm going to play for you a song sung here by Laboratorium Piesni. It's called Oi Verce. It's a Lemko song. And the translation is Oh Mountains, my mountains, my dear green mountains, life has changed for me. It's not as it used to be. Life has changed for me. me. Mm-hmm. 
As another introduction to my grandmother, I want to read my grandfather's description of her in the book that he wrote in, um, I forget what year. It's called Behind the Urals, and it's about the time that he spent in Russia in the 1930s. He wrote it, it looks like in 1942 it was published. And um, so a lot of it is about, uh, it's about the city, like this, this amazing city that's built in the mountains. Um, and it's like the, the Detroit of, of the Soviet Union. But in the middle of it, he has a chapter called Masha. And first he talks about their romance a little bit. And then he gives a little description of her life, which I'd like to read here. So um, I, what does he say? I found that she had been born and brought up in a village under circumstances as strange and incredible to most Americans as my actual background was to her. Her father was a poor peasant who went to war in 1915, leaving behind his wife and eight children, the oldest of whom was 14. The mother was left to get along as best as she could. Jivi kakochish or live as you like, as the Russians say in such cases. The children, six of whom were girls, worked in the fields as soon as they were old enough to hold a hoe or a pitchfork. They lived in a one-and-a-half-room wooden hut, and Masha remembers that they were happy when there was, much, when there was as much bread and salt as they wanted. Tea, sugar, and meat were great luxuries. The family lived in the Tverskaya Gubernia, roughly halfway between Moscow and Leningrad, a part of Russia where poor soil and long winters have always kept agricultural production low and the population correspondingly poor. Masha's mother and father were both descended from serfs and were both illiterate. They were determined, however, that their children should go to school and so often barefoot and ragged, Masha and her brothers and sisters started to study in the local village school, which went as far as the fourth grade. By the time Masha went to school, in 1920, her oldest sister was the teacher. During the Civil War, there were no military operations in Masha's village, but her elder brother went to the front and her father arrived home wounded and sick with a trench malaria, which never left him. The village livestock was requisitioned and sent off to Moscow and Leningrad to feed the revolution. Masha's second brother worked for a while in the town of Udomia, some five miles from home, taking care of the requisition stock until it could be shipped off. Every evening he would come home with a pail of milk, which was drunk dry immediately by the many children. The new Bolshevik government sent inspectors to every village to look for hoarded bread. There was famine in the country, and foreign and white armies were pressing upon it on many fronts. The inspectors found nothing in Masha's hut. And maybe I'll just skip a little bit. Um, they... 
Shortly, a, a secondary school was organized in Udomne, and Masha enrolled. It was five miles each way every day, and when she was 14, Masha got her first pair of shoes. And then during the mid-20s, things got better. So it, it goes on. There's a little bit more, but I just wanted to read that, that brief introduction from my grandfather of his kind of take on her life at this moment when they were, they were in their um, early 30s or younger, 20s. They were in their mid-20s. They were so young. Um, and I also have to read, because it's, it's kind of lovely, is my grandmother's impression of my grandfather when they first met. So she wrote about it in her journal, which he includes in his book. Uh, the next evening, a stringy, intense-looking young fellow came into the office and sat down near the stove. He was dressed in ragged brown working clothes and had a heavy brown scarf around his neck. His clothes and his big tattered Valenkis, Valenkis are a Russian boot made out of felt, um, were absolutely grimy with blast furnace dust. He looked very tired and lonely. When Anya told me in a whisper that it was John Scott, I didn't believe her at first. Then I was very disappointed and then I became sorry for him. The first American I had ever seen, he looked like a homeless boy. I saw in him the product of capitalist depression. I saw in my mind's eye his sad childhood. I imagined the long hours of inhuman labor which he had been forced to perform in some capitalist factory while still a boy. I imagined the shamefully low wages he received, only sufficient to buy enough bread so that he could go to work the next day. I imagined his fear of losing even this pittance and being thrown on the streets unemployed in case he was unable to do his work to the satisfaction and profit of his parasitic bosses. And, of course, this is great because the bitter irony is that my my grandfather was from an upper-middle-class family and was not working in a factory. He was going to private boarding schools in Switzerland. Um, so that's my grandparents' take on each other. So here's a story. One day last fall, I was uh, taking an early morning walk. I turned a corner on an old dirt road and I came across a clear field 
dotted with hay bales. And the sun was shining in my eyes at such an angle. The field was just soaked with morning dew that for a second I imagined that I was somewhere else and that this field, those big machine rolled round hay bales were, were haystacks. And there in the distance, I thought, what if there was a little family there? Wait, what if there was, there's a man and there's a couple teenagers and there's some younger kids and maybe the youngest one is about seven years old and they're all bent over and they have sickles and they're mowing the field every single one of them from the grown man the father to the teenagers to the kids to the seven-year-old girl they have they have uh, sickles that kind of match their size. And they're mowing the grass. And you can just hear that sound of the grass being cut. Whooshed, 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 whooshed. And once in a while, one of them stands up to wipe the sweat off their faces or, or to uh, get, get a drink of water. Um, they're dressed, what are they dressed like? The father has a beard, he has a linen shirt with a belt and a pair of like plain pants. I think he has shoes, but none of the kids do. Um, the girls are wearing dresses and kerchiefs. And the boys are dressed like the father. And there's about six of them, I think. And the littlest girl, is she's keeping up with them all. She's, she's mowing that field, too. And it's hard. It's hard work. She's bent over. Her Her back hurts. But every once in a while, the father stops his work and he goes and he checks all the kids' work. And he praises them for a job well done or, or corrects them and shows them how to hold the sickle in a better way or how to... Um, make a really, really clean cut and a really straight row. And the little girl, she wants to be like her older brothers and sisters, and they're not complaining, so she's not going to complain either. She's just doing her best to keep up with them. And the morning is going on, and the sun has burnt all the, the dew off. And... It's really hard, and she's feeling it. 
and her hands hurt, her shoulders hurt, her legs hurt, her back hurts. But they got to keep going. And finally, finally, the father says it's time to take a break because once the dew is gone, they can't cut the grass anymore. So they sit down in the shade of a tree and they eat a little lunch, maybe some boiled eggs and mushrooms. They probably don't have a lot of bread at this time of year, is my guess, that they would be eating. Maybe they have some cheese. I would think most of their grains would be gone if it's, let's say, the end of June or mid-June. So they take a little break, and then now they have to get back to work, but now they're, they're raking up the hay that they mowed yesterday, and they're turning it, tending it, and gathering it into piles. Um, and it's still hard work, but um, now I think the little girl gets that job of like mushing the hay down with her feet, and that's pretty fun. Um, she and her, her sister get to do that. And, and then um, there's more. There's just more hay. There's, it's a really big field, and they have to keep going, mowing this hay, and not mowing now. They're raking. And, uh, and it's a hot day, and they're so hot, and the girl is so hot and tired. Um, and she also, they all have their own rakes also because they have to have their own tools or their own pitchfork, turning, turning forks. I think those are made out of wood. And now the brightness of the day is, is dissipating a little. And there's some dark clouds coming over the hill. And, and the wind is picking up, and the dark clouds are getting darker and coming closer, and the father's looking really worried, and he's working really, really fast, trying to get all that hay in, and he's, he's starting to bark at them all and, and like yell at them, like, come on, hurry up, we got to do this, we can do it. And everyone's feeling really tense and really nervous, and they're just working as fast as they can, and the, the clouds are getting darker and darker, and they hear thunder in the distance. And Father is just looking more and more worried and, and, and mostly silent, just working really, really hard and really fast, but once in a while, like, barking something out to them. Um, and then... The dark clouds are totally on top of them now. They're right there over their head. The wind is really picked up. The thunder is loud. They see lightning and boom, it happens. The downpour happens and the rain comes down and the hay is not picked up. 
and the father just sits right down where he is standing on the ground and just starts sobbing. And all the kids are quiet for a while. But then the littlest girl, she can't help it. She starts to think, oh my God, we are going to get the afternoon off. And she starts to think about going into the woods and hunting for mushrooms with her big brother. Or maybe even taking the boat out into the lake and fishing. And what about that wild raspberry batch? They could go check on that. And she starts thinking about all of the fun things they can do. And she, a smile just creeps over her face. And she looks at her sister. And her sister has that look on her face too. Like they are so, so happy thinking about getting the day off from the back-breaking work. And then one of the older sisters, the teenager, comes up to them and she says, hey, you guys, I was over at the neighbor's the other day and they taught me this really fun new song. And it has a dance that goes with it. Can I, you want to learn it? And all of the kids are like, yes, we want to learn it right now. And so she teaches them the dance and the song. And it's a really bright, funny, fun song. And in no time, they're all like singing and dancing and laughing. And this whole time, the father's been like sitting on the ground, just like in total despair, thinking of all the work that has to get done all over again like all that hay is gonna have to go back out and dry again and it won't be as good and but now as he sees his kids like singing and dancing and so happy he like wipes the tears off of his face and he stands up and he starts smiling and he joins in and he is happy too and he probably says some great, like, Russian saying at that moment, like, not life, but raspberries. Or Wait, I'll, I'll find it. I'll find it later and get it. Um, but I imagine that, that he does some great Russian saying at that moment.
Yeah, and that's the story. And that's a story that of all the stories from her childhood that my grandmother would tell, that was the one she told the most. She, she, she would talk about that story all the time. And it's in her memoirs. And um, I see it somehow as like, like I can totally relate to it as a farmer now. Like that feeling of like, despair when you've been working so hard and and you know like all your work was for nothing um but I also see it as like wow their their life was so so different and that she was that's my grandmother that seven-year-old girl was my grandma um and she was once a little girl uh working in the fields with her whole family And the dance songs you just heard were On the Street by the Pokrovsky Ensemble and uh, Irinushka sung here by the Russian-Dutch group Zaryanka. That's it. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next month, Saturday, June 10th, with another episode I'll be introducing you to my grandmother's family, especially her sisters, who she loved so much. Tanya, Anya, Shura, Sonia, and Katya. And I'll be talking about peasant village life. Thanks for bearing with me and my technical glitches. This is my first show ever, and I have so much to learn. I'm very grateful to the whole crew at WGDR for training, support, and giving me this opportunity. I'm sharing this Saturday morning slot with two other new programs, Kitchen Permaculture with Rebecca Beiler on third Saturdays and Fire and Ash talking about death with Poa Mutina on fourth Saturdays. You can email me with comments or questions I'm leaving you with another song by Kostroma, Kak Nad Yaram, Along the River Bluff. Along the river bluff, there stood three green gardens. In the first garden, a nightingale was singing. In the second garden, a cuckoo was cuckooing. And in the third garden, there was a path. Как над яром, над ярочком, 
над крутеньким бережой елочкам. Oh, 